certainly we took a lot of things for granted before this epidemic and maybe what we can start to support is more attitudes of gratitude about what we do enjoy and those things and people that we did take for granted. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod County. Things have certainly changed since our last episode with Dr. Timothy Dowling from the University of Delaware. When we interviewed Dr. Dowling, that was at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic in Delaware. We had six cases at that time. We're now, I believe, over 5,000 cases in just a six, seven-week time period. So the pandemic has certainly grown substantially in that time. And as a result, it's been fairly challenging trying to continue to produce Pod County episodes. We've had a couple lined up, but unfortunately, between either social distancing or access issues with the studio, it's, it's been tough to get anything recorded. We have been able to inform the public as best as we could through a series of Facebook Live interviews and, and productions that we've done with the county executive during this time to keep people informed both about what we're doing here at the county, but also the different ways that these initiatives and programs are going to impact you. We do have a a better understanding, I think, now of social distancing, of of mask use universally, and and I think we're we're reaching a point uh, now where things may begin to start opening up. I know Governor Carney issued an order uh, this Wednesday that, that laid out some steps for that, so hopefully we'll start seeing Uh, some semblance of normalcy, but I I imagine it'll be a while before we're back to anything that we would have called normal before this. But with that, we we were able to get Dr. Amy Cheng-Volmer in from Swarthmore College uh, up in Pennsylvania. She is a Wilmington resident, and she is also a microbiology and biotechnology professor at Swarthmore, uh, where she's been teaching since 1989. So a lot of experience in this realm and in, you know, the last few weeks since we've had Dr. Dowling on, the conspiracy theories have been rampant. Um, there's a lot of misinformation that has been flowing, that has been constant in this. And, and really, I think there's still questions a lot of people have about how, how this thing works to begin with, the difference between viruses and bacteria, the you know, different ways uh, that this virus can enter your body, that you can be infected, and, and, and things you can do to continue to keep yourself safe as we try to return to some semblance of a normal society. So she reached out to the county executive at Meyer and uh, asked if we'd be open to having her participate in some educational thing. We thought, well, hey, what a what a great way to do another Pod County episode. So we brought her in. This was the second podcast recording that we did live on Facebook. We did that last night and a lot of great feedback on that. I think our two biggest Facebook live events have been the ones we've done both here with Dr. Cheng Vollmer and um, with Dr. Dowling, certainly shows the the need for information on this, the need to dispel some of these conspiracy theories and myths, and the the desire that people have for real information to to stay informed and stay safe. So you know we're going to try to get some non-COVID content together. We're going to try to get some non-COVID related guests in here. I'm sure it'll still be a topic of conversation, but we're working. We're working to try and produce some content to take your mind off of what's happening out there in the world right now, because it's certainly an anxiety-inducing and anxiety-stressing uh, situation for everyone, especially the longer this goes on, the worse that has to be. So uh, for right now, sit back and enjoy this episode with Dr. Amy Chang-Balmer. 
Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to another live recording of Pod County, the Newcastle County podcast. We are joined today by Dr. Amy Cheng Fulmer. She is a professor at Swarthmore College, has been there since 1989, teaching biology and, or sorry, microbiology and biotechnology. And we also have County Executive Matt Meyer here, uh, who really kind of prompted the, the need for this podcast uh, with his, his CBS3 interview. Uh, Matt, would you like to kick us off? Sure, yeah. Thanks so much, Kyle, and thanks for everyone out there in the listening audience. Kyle, this is a podcast as well, right? We're turning it into is, a podcast? That is correct, yes. This is a, a live podcast recording. It's great to be here with Dr. Vollmer, a distinguished professor at Swarthmore College right up, right up the street, but a, a, a Wilmingtonian, a Delawarean, and a Newcastle Countian. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being here. You, Dr., Dr. Vollmer reached out to me to tell me that when I was on, I believe it was ABC News, CBS. CBS, and we talked to CBS Philly talking about our sewer, uh, the the viral load going through the the uh, sewers. The treatment uh, the treatment samples were taken to measure COVID nineteen in our sewers. Um, I said, which uh, my high school biology and chemistry teacher might have a problem with, the, the phrase "viral bacteria," which of course was a big no no. <laughs> Dr. Volmer thankfully reached out directly to me and said, let's have a little chemistry 101. <laughs> I thought it was a great session. Uh, so why don't you, why don't we start there? Thank you very much, by the way. This is really important to educate the public. We're out there talking a lot about number of people who have tested positive, number of hospitalizations, number of fatalities, how many tests we've done, how many negative antibody. Today, I, I think we're interested in hearing more about the chemistry with your background, <laughs> hearing more about what, what exactly is a virus? How is it different from a bacteria? What is a vaccine? What is treatment? And and sort of what's your view as someone who has scientific expertise about where this is going? So, Thanks, Matt. Um, before we go any further, I think we're sitting far enough apart that I would love to take my mask off. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to do that. You're the doctor. Before we do that, <laughs> why don't we talk a little bit about masks? Because, uh, yeah, it, it's... Uh, it's harder wearing glasses to wear a mask. Yeah. Um, and I've even heard for some children, it's not even safe to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. So w what's your view on, on masks? The CDC and a number, you know, certainly the governor and others and myself are strong advocates of wearing masks in public. It's, you know, you're required to do it now. And what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I walked in here wearing a mask from being out in the public. And the masks are for um, preventing an aerosol droplet coming out of the individual that might be carrying a virus to be spewed forth. And, and certainly everybody's seen those um, animations on, on YouTube that show you how far a spray from your mouth can go, whether it's a sneeze, a cough, or even just talking. Um, and because some of us may be carrying the virus and be fairly asymptomatic, we don't want to unwittingly um, communicate that virus to other people. But the, the spraying, I think we're probably about, I don't know, eight or 10 feet apart. So I'm, I'm pretty comfortable taking off my mask, if you are. If you would prefer you're, that I keep my mask on. You're the doctor. Yeah, if you're well, comfortable, I'm, I, I'm comfortable, <laughs> and Matt, you're comfortable. Under medical advice. Well, I'm just, ugh, ah, uh, I don't think I could do PhD. more than five minutes of this if I had to talk with my mask on. Ah, all right. So, yes, I did reach out to Matt because he, he was ending his broadcast and I could see that he was struggling. He was trying to find a way to talk about viruses that were not inside people, but were in the water. 
and he his his training told him that I could tell he didn't want to say viral cells because he knows viruses aren't cells, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. And he, I could, he, you could see kind of the wheels turning, and he came out with viral bacteria, and I went, oh, he missed. <laughs> Just like that. And so I sat down at my computer, looked him up, and sent him an email and simply said, I could tell you were grasping for the right word and you missed, and it, you know, if you have five minutes, I'd love to have a conversation with you over the phone. Anyway, he was nice enough to write me back, and this conversation is the result of that. So tell us, what, what is the difference between a virus and a bacteria? Why, why is viral bacteria not an appropriate phrase? Well, I think it starts because we know about viruses and we know about bacteria, and, and both can cause diseases in people. And we also know that we can't see either of them without the aid of a powerful microscope. And so as a microbiologist, that's what I end up studying, is things that you can't see unless you have a microscope. But um, viruses and bacteria are very, very different. The main thing is that bacteria are cells, and cells are the basic unit of life. Anything that's alive is composed of cells. Plants, animals, fungi, protists, bacteria, all made up of cells. We are made up of thousands and thousands of cells, Bacteria are often single-celled. Viruses are acellular. They don't have all the parts. And so while bacteria can reproduce and grow outside of a host cell, viruses absolutely can't. So there's also, I've heard my doctor refer to good bacteria, bad bacteria. Mm -hmm. I've only heard bad viruses. Are there good viruses? Well, it's interesting. You kind of get what you look for. And we often only find viruses because somebody's sick. But we know, in fact, in the plant kingdom, that there are plants that are heat tolerant. And when we look and see why they're heat tolerant, sometimes the reason is they carry a virus that allows them to be heat tolerant. So uh, Marilyn Rusnik up at Penn State actually studies this. So I wouldn't say that all viruses are bad, um, but we tend to only find them when we're looking for what caused a disease. So that kind of biases our search. And that used to be the way bacteria were. We thought all bacteria were harmful to us. And it turns out, au contraire. Um, I use the metaphor of teenagers. You know, when you hear about teenagers in the news, unless it's the last two minutes and they want to share some good news, it's usually something terrible they've done or something foolish they've done or something like that. It turns out there's a lot of great teenagers as we both know. And so um, that's the same thing with bacteria. In fact, we owe our health and well-being to good bacteria. I can't wait to next teenager I see you say you're just like a bacteria. <laughs> you might be good. You, you might be bad. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about, about uh, COVID-19, your, your impression on the virus, how is that, you know, we've, we, it, initially we were using the term coronavirus, mm -hmm. and this is a novel or new mm -hmm. coronavirus. There are many coronaviruses out there. Uh, we obviously are a lot more knowledgeable about some of the older coronaviruses. What, 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 tell us a little bit about COVID-19. So um, technically, the name of the disease it call, causes is COVID-19. And technically, the name of the virus is SARS-CoV-2. But I think most people are comfortable if I say COVID-19 and I'm gonna use it right now to refer to the virus. 
So it is a novel virus because it's never been documented before as infecting humans. Um, whether it's novel in nature, we don't know. It's probably existed in nature for a while. But its new ability that we care about is that it can infect human hosts. So it can infect a human host. So like there are stories, right, that you sit down on a bench, you put your hand on a metal, um, you know, a, a, a metal bar on the bench, you can get uh, SARS-CoV, you can get the virus from that. That's not a human host. Oh, no. The transmission doesn't require human-to-human um, -human contact directly. But um, what I mean by a human host is the fact that the virus can't make copies of itself unless it commandeers a human host cell. And so the metaphor I like to use is, so if a bacterial um, infection happens inside your body, for the most part, the bacteria are living alongside your cells. It would be like you're living in your home and a bacterium pulls up and parks itself in your driveway. Um, it may intercept some food packages and it may tap into your cable, but it's living, it's not using your kitchen, it's not using your bathroom. Your life can go on fairly reasonably without it. It's a little irritating after a while and its trash builds up and it makes you sick. A virus moves in. It has to use your kitchen and your washing machines because it doesn't have any of those machines to, to keep itself um, making copies of itself, which is the whole point of being a virus is you just want to propagate. And so that upsets your household functions. And so this particular virus takes over your lung cells. So you don't have to be a scientist to know what lungs do. We need them to breathe, to exchange gases, oxygen coming in, CO2 going out. And so if a virus is interfering with cells' ability to do that, then suffocation is a real consequence. So do you know why for some people that get the virus, it's really n nothing? Some You say it can take over your lungs. For a large number of people, a large percentage, n nothing happens. For others, a little bit happens. Maybe they have a cough, they have a fever, uh, and for others, it's, it's fatal. Why is that? Well, I mean, that's part of being uniquely human. Um, we, we value all kinds of individuality and diversity among the human population. And another place that it manifests itself is our, the condition of our health, and in particular, the condition of our lungs. So if you are, um, your lungs are already a little bit irritated because you live near an incinerator and the air pollution in your neighborhood is already irritating your lungs a little bit, your, your immune system in your lungs, those cells are already busy trying to deal with that irritation. And so they may not be 100% primed to deal with a new irritant, the virus, when it lands on one of your so, lung cells. So why is it so much worse than like the flu? Well, I think it's because of the lungs and the way the lungs work. The flu can affect all kinds of different um, tissues in your body. Um, you know, your nasal passages and you have a sore throat and everything. This tends to head straight for the lungs because the lungs are very rich for this ACE2 receptor, which is kind of the lock that the coronavirus's key fits into and opens, literally opens the door and enters the cell. And when that happens, your immune system does try to take over. But in the ensuing response, 
so many of your immune cells come to that area that they actually crowd out the ability to exchange oxygen and, and CO2, and, and that can be a problem. So I think that really, you kind of hit on two big points there in the reaction we've seen for different people based on their age or, <laughs> or um, you know, the different conditions they might be dealing with. Uh, initially, it was a big thing for people who may already be immunocompromised, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because their body could be fighting something off. But I think we've been seeing more for people in my, my age group, that kind of 30 to 40 range, it's been the immune system overreaction mm -hmm. that, um, that has caused a lot of that problem. Can you, can you speak to how the immune system can react in different ways and what, what, what is it called when, the, um, when, when you wind up your immune, own immune system starts making it worse? Right, so um, all of our, our bodily functions are balanced, right? There's a really careful balancing of everything, not too much, not too little, kind of a Goldilocks zone um, balance of everything. And um, I think that uh, what happens is that if you have a healthy, if, you, if, you, if you're a young person and you, you're in pretty good shape and you think you're you know, doing pretty well, your immune system's going to try to fight this viral infection. And normally you've got cells that will recognize a host cell that's been taken over by a virus. There are special features of that. And there are particular immune system cells will go in and kill that cell. And when you kill that cell, it actually gets burst open. And then you have all these other immune cells that come in and eat up all the debris. And that, that should do it. But if in the middle of that bursting, some of the viral particles that are released don't get swept up, and they, they infect the cell next door, and the cell next door, and the cell next door, now you have a bigger infection. When those cells get killed by the immune cells, now there's even more debris and so more cleanup crew has to be called in. The signals that the immune system creates are called cytokines. And I think the thing you're referring to is what the media has called a cytokine storm. And you know, what is that, right? It's signals that say, we need help. We need more help. We need more help. And all those helpers that come in are all doing their job. But what has happened now is that they have crowded that area so much that the lung cells, the ones that are left, that are trying to do their gas exchange, can't do their job. And so the balance has been tipped. And we don't really appreciate those balances until we don't have them. You, you talked about how the immune system breaks down a cell. I was, I was reading an interesting art, article about why soap is so effective for viral cells, and, and can you talk a little bit about how, why it's so important just to, like, washing our hands and, and hand sanitizer, how effective it is against this thing? Um, this particular virus is called an envelope virus. It has an outer surface, and the way it leaves a cell um, is it buds off of the surface and takes a little bit of the cell's membrane with it, and it embeds into that membrane those little corona spikes. So the membrane is kind of greasy. And what do you use in your kitchen sink when you want to get rid of grease? You use soap. So if you use soap and there's a, a, a droplet on your hand and it's got a viral particle in it, when you rub that soap, you're gonna, the grease from the soap, because soap is made out of fat, right, is going to dissolve the envelope of the, of the virus. And that envelope protects the RNA inside. And once you've busted the envelope open, 
there's no way that virus can get into another host cell. So it's extremely effective. Alcohols, like hand sanitizers, also dissolve fat. They dissolve um, the lipids and the membranes. So they're both very effective. You can't beat soap and water. We've already, uh, we've already had a few comments come on the thread, and I think it's important because it seems, it seems the longer this has gone on, the more, maybe not the more misinformation that's come out, but there's, there's always some new piece of misinformation, right? And so the first comment we had was that your six feet apart masks don't even work. And the second comment was masks are only to keep you from touching your face. So why were you wearing masks? And I think it's, you know, you let off with it's, you know, it's important to, you know, prevent the, the aerosol droplets. And that's, that's one reason to wear a mask. But uh, let's, let's also clarify that masks aren't just to keep you from touching your face, correct? Well, no, uh, the mask won't keep me from touching my eyes. And the eyes are a really important entry point. So, so no, the, if you actually wanted to keep from touching your face, I've seen the cartoons of the people wearing those dog collars that your dog gets at the vet so it can't scratch itself, right? <laughs> so that's what you would actually need. So I think one of the things that I've noticed um, during this epidemic is that people are so uncomfortable with uncertainty. We would just like to be 100% certain. And when you're dealing with something new, like this coronavirus, that we've never seen before, scientists are doing research and the, the media is trying to pick pieces of that research to tell people to keep them informed. But everything is still in progress. And so as we learn more, sometimes we modify what we said before because we've learned more stuff. And so I think that's just difficult. If you, if you think about it, you get a front row seat right now to seeing how science is done. And it is messy. Usually what you read in textbooks has been all filtered and distilled and cleaned up. But every fact that you've read in a textbook had at some point been a subject of controversy. Students of introductory biology know that DNA is the genetic material, right? That's, that, that'll give you the right answer on an AP biology test. But for years, there was a controversy that people actually thought proteins were the genetic material. And they were kind of knocked down, drag out intellectual fights about this for decades. So right now, we're not in a knockdown, drag out fight. We're just trying to understand this entity so that we can interrupt either the transmission or its, its infection of the host cell or its ability to reproduce. And as we learn more information, we add more to the pile of information. And that can be very unsettling when people just want the right answer. So you talked a little bit about the infection of the host cell. Let's talk a little bit about transmission. Um, it, it, it's clear that if something, if, if the virus somehow travels directly from my mouth to somebody else's eye or into their nose or in their mouth, they're going to get it. And that seems pretty clear. T to me, is it the same virus? So the same, um, th the same virus that's in me will go into you, and and it just it does the same thing in your body that it does in mine, and it's just a question of how your body reacts to it compared to mine. Yeah, I I think so, Matt. I mean, um, you and I don't look identical to one another, and we probably have a lot of differences in all of our cells and tissues. Let's say you have. I don't know, 100 of these ACE2 receptors per cell, and I have 500. So the probability that a virus floating in the air 
two identical droplets, one hits you, one hits me, I might have a higher chance of getting infected because I have more locks that the, the coronavirus can unlock. That says nothing about how healthy the two of us are, how, how much water we drink, how, you know, what kind of food we eat, all those other factors that all play a part into our immune readiness. So no matter how many oranges I eat or ginger I, I eat each morning, it, it's not going to make a difference. Oh, I think it will make a difference. I think if you increase your immune responsiveness, so what you want to do is always have the biggest difference between how healthy you are going into any kind of um, epidemic, right, and how little you get exposed to. So we want to keep that distance really big. So sleeping well at night, eating well, staying hydrated, getting exercise, having good mental health are all things that push your ability to respond as high as possible. You know, it's like peak performance for an Olympic athlete, right? You want to train for this. So everything you do in your life adds to that. Then on the other side is the thing we can't control as much, right? And that is how much we're exposed to. So the wearing of the mask keeps me, if I happen to have the virus, from broadcasting it to you. The mask is not there to keep us from touching our face. So that we've got to bust that myth. And then we want to put ourselves in environments where the probability of somebody spreading the virus, maybe because they don't have a mask on, um, is low. And that's where social distancing has been so incredibly effective, even though it has been so sad for many of us. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, haven't, I, I, don't, I normally have dinner with my parents once a week, and that mm. now it's a wave uh, from the backyard right. and drop off some groceries. Right. I think many are, are, are in similar situations. Talk a little bit about transmission where it's not person to person, where it's, you know, a, 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 a metallic surface. surface yeah. Sure. Or, so the thing about viruses is that because they're not alive when they're outside of the host, they can last for quite a while on what we call um, these inanimate objects, these fomites. And so whereas a bacterial cell, it really needs moisture um, to stay alive. Very few bacteria are going to survive very long when the, when the um, surface that it's landed on is completely dried out. So um, if somebody just wiped their nose, let's say, or coughed into their hand and then held the handrail and went down the stairs to get on the train or something, and then you came up the stairs and held onto that same handrail, and then you, you know, swiped your hair out of your eyes or you touched your face or chewed your fingernail or whatever people do, that could definitely bring the virus into your body, okay? Because it's not alive, it doesn't care that it's been on a dry surface for a couple hours. Now, whether that particular viral particle makes its way into your lungs and matches itself with your lung cells, we don't know what the probability of that is, right? But we're just trying to minimize our encounters with things that might carry the virus. Good. You've, uh, microbiology, um, biotechnology, I think, you know, your backgrounds there might help to dispel some of the the conspiracy theory around this having originated in a lab, that this was genetically created or that this was 
it, maybe it was we knew China knew about it before and it got out of a lab, you know, like something out of a movie like Contagion. Can you Dr. Anthony Fauci has has already tried to shoot as many holes in this myth. It was in National Geographic this week. He was addressing it again. But can you kind of speak to the implausibility of even the premise of that thing? So um, before I get into that, I, I do want to acknowledge that um, I'm a member of the American Society for Microbiology, and it's one of the preeminent uh, professional organizations, kind of the voice of microbiology in, in many in many ways. And um, through it, I, I actually met Dr. Fauci and respect him a great deal and really thank him for his tremendous public service that he's um, been involved in. I would say that it is so hard for us to understand something abstract. It's just hard. And so we like to tell a story that helps us make sense of it. And when the thing that has come out of this abstract process is harmful, we couldn't imagine that wild animals, right, animals that we might see their cousins in the zoo, could possibly be the source of this quote-unquote evil, right? It would be much easier for us to tell a story where there were evil people, because we're much more willing to believe evil people than evil am animals. Um, and that somehow from their hands this emanated. The fact of the matter is, nature is neither good nor bad. Nature is nature, and, and by the way, it's a whole lot bigger than we are. And this is nature's reminder that um, biological processes continue in nature, continue evolving, and occasionally um, the chips fall such that humans are affected. Um, there's a lot of good data that show that um, viruses like this jump between hosts, um, but only if the hosts and the animals that originally carry them come into contact with one another. And one of the downsides of ecotourism and eating exotic foods and things like that is that humans come into contact with um, animals that have been in environments that didn't used to have humans in it. So. It's not very probable that a virus will jump hosts, but we make it a little bit more probable when we interact with those environments in new ways. By jump hosts, you mean transmitting from an animal to a human. Exactly, exactly. And that's why this is a novel coronavirus for humans. There's been some stories about it mutating, which suggests the, the virus that was in the animal is, is in some way fundamentally different now that it's in humans. And maybe, you know, when we say this person has tested positive and that person has tested positive, maybe they actually have a different, you know, mutation of the virus in them. How is that possible? So this virus is an RNA virus. So um, one of the ways um, viruses differ from cells is that cells, like bacteria and human cells, have DNA and RNA and proteins. Viruses contain either DNA or RNA, never both. When DNA is copied, there is a really cool proofreading mechanism that's kind of like spell check, right? It's, it's very cool. But when RNA is copied, there is no mm. spell check. And so, you know, if you turn off your spell check, you know what happens to your documents. You end up with more typos. Mm. Now, what's hard for people to understand is that mutations are not necessarily bad. A mutation is simply a change in the genetic code. And it's actually the raw material for natural selection. 
So you can have a mutation that could be beneficial under one set of conditions and harmful under another set of conditions. And so it's, it's, we have a negative connotation of mutants, but that's, that's on us. Mutations happen all the time. Recently in the news, I read about somebody who said, oh, well, this mutation makes the virus more contagious. Well, okay, it could make the virus more contagious, but another mutation could make the virus less successful in replicating. We're only going to see the result of successful replication in the dissemination of the disease, right? We're not going to see the failed mutations that got left behind. Mm. And depending upon the situation, depending upon the patient, depending upon the environment, um, certain mutations might have an advantage, might have a disadvantage. But mutations are part of the fabric of life. Great. You are listening to Pod County with Professor Amy Chang Vollmer. She is the Isaac Clothier Jr. Professor of Microbiology at Swarthmore College, right up the up the road, uh, just outside Newcastle County. We're honored to have Newcastle County resident Professor Vollmer here educating us today on some of the micro details of <laughs> macro importance uh, concerning uh, COVID-19. We do have uh, one good question that's come up um, speaking to mutation and how that could affect uh, vaccine development. If, if we do see this virus mutating, um, how would that affect the ability to, to develop a vaccine? We've heard uh, a realistic timetable could be 12, 18 months. Um, so if we're talking in, you know, maybe six months, it's already mutated once, uh, what could that do? And um, kind of to that point as well, what, you know, we've talked about the lungs and this, the impact on the lungs, but what other residual effects could the virus, as we understand it now, be having on other organs of the body? Well, that's, that's a whole bunch of questions altogether. <laughs> let me try, let me try some of them. Um, so depends on where the mutation occurs. Um, if the mutation occurs such that something about the virus makes it stickier, like on its outside, um, then it might affect vaccine development because the vaccine tends to be developed um, using outwardly facing, like the spikes or things that, that, that the human body would encounter first. If the mutation's on something on the inside that has to do with making more RNA, that is not going to help us with a vaccine because that's not part of what the immune system recognizes when we first encounter the viral particle. So it really, it's context dependent. Um, what, what the mutations do. One of the reasons HIV has been so um, challenging in terms of developing vaccine is because it tends to mutate most in the kind of outward-facing piece, and that's just been exasperating for all the really dedicated scientists that have been trying to work on this. So that's, that's my way of saying I don't know where the mutations are and what the manifestations of those mutations are, and so I can't really say if they relate to vaccine. I can't remember. You had the other. other. The, the other. It was the same person asked both questions, okay. so I, th I threw them both out. Well, these but are good questions. Yeah. Um, the The other question was what, at least from the virus as we understand it now, mm -hmm. we understand how it affects the lungs. Oh. What residual effects could we be seeing on other organs of the body? Well, that that again, it depends on the patient. It depends on where other. Um, tissues that might be expressing these ACE2 um, receptors or receptors that are in the same family of the ACE2 might have kind of secondary ability to get unlocked. Um, and so we don't, we won't really know that until we keep studying people who have recovered. 
And I think that's going to be very complicated because I think, again, different people have different kinds of susceptibilities. But, you know, scientists do this. We, we study a lot of things. They don't seem to make a lot of sense. And we keep studying and we keep describing to other people. And then all of a sudden, these patterns start to emerge. And I have to tell you, it's really exciting as a scientist when you're there at that moment, when we start to see these things kind of fitting together. And, and I'm hoping that as we learn a lot about the coronavirus um, and how it fits into this big family of coronaviruses, this new one, what is it teaching us that we didn't already know? How does it fit into existing patterns, or do we see new patterns? Um, and all of that helps us advance our knowledge and hopefully will help us be more prepared for the next one. How long do you think it'll take us to advance our knowledge and see patterns before we can go back to restaurants and bars before we can, you know, start start living our lives again. Boy, I, it takes somebody with a lot more wisdom to be able to say that for sure, Matt. Um, and I feel the pain of people who, who are feel really stuck at home, and, and I kind of had a little meltdown a couple of days myself uh, a couple of days ago. So it is really tough on us. Um, certainly, we took a lot of things for granted before this epidemic, and maybe what we can... Um, start to support is more attitudes of gratitude about what we do enjoy and those things we did take, things and people that we did take for granted. Um, we are, we're seeing now some early openings in some other states and maybe in ours as well for a few businesses. And so those will generate more data. I mean, we're living the experiment, um, whether we like it or not. And so we People are busily collecting data. They are sharing the data. The data are being published faster than ever so that we can all learn. And um, a friend of mine just sent me a, a really cool set of data that he's been generating, and he updates it every day, and it's really exciting. You can plug in county by county what all the numbers are. We have great technology now that allows us to, to analyze and large data sets, and so if, if there's no time like the present to try to really learn about it. It's hard to be patient. It's really hard to be patient. But I'm actually quite impressed at how much has been done already. Are you worried that the scientific process, to some degree, is trial and error? There are mistakes made. There's a theory, right? All these scientists follow the theory, and then something disproves it, so they got to go back and follow another trail. Are you, are you concerned that because it's on the fly, maybe we're going to spend days or weeks or months sort of following the wrong theory, either with regard to treatment or vaccine or how it's transmitted from person to person, and that may put more people in more danger? Well, I think the news cycle may latch on to one hypothesis. I wouldn't call it a theory yet. It's not there yet. Um, but I think what's going on in, in the scientific enterprises, many, many leads are being followed. Um, and I wouldn't um, say that the scientific method itself is so unique. If you come up with a business plan and you do market research and you launch a business, you get results. You get feedback from those results. Sometimes you fail. Sometimes you reboot and launch again. In, in, a, in a legal trial, there's a hypothesis that somebody's guilty and somebody's innocent, and you have evidence, and you make your arguments, and sometimes the results come out the way you want, and sometimes you don't, and then you appeal, and then you look at the evidence again, or there, if there's more... Um, technology, you get to go back and look at evidence in it with fresh eyes. I, I wouldn't ca 
call out the scientific method itself as something really foreign or weird. We all do it, but scientists tend to really um, concentrate on the rigor um, and on the, the critical analysis. And sometimes that is painstaking, which means it takes time. Mm -hmm. But you've got to trust the process. Everything we use, the pills that you put in your mouth, you know, the Tylenol and the other things that you're taking, well, all came out of rigorous studies. Uh, they were deemed to be safe. And so we're the beneficiaries of that. Unfortunately, right now, we're seeing that the process really takes quite a bit of effort. Do you have there the, the sort of new generation of tests, PCR tests, the viral tests, are saliva versus the sort of deep uh, nasal swabs, uh, less invasive, right? A lot easier to put something that looks like a Q-tip, rub it around your mouth a little bit, and then put it in a tube, then stick something way up your nose. What are your thoughts on sort of different collection mechanisms? Well, again, I think the tests have gotten better um, just in the, in the few weeks that we've really been deploying them. Um, I think early on we really wanted to make sure we got a, a high sample size, and so the deeper in the tissue you go, the more likely you're going to get that. Saliva, you know, it's got a lot of stuff in it, depending on what you ate and all that kind of stuff, and so the tests are sensitive enough to pick up now, it seems like, um, viral particles in the saliva. So that, that's excellent because the less invasive, the less scary it is, and the easier it is to administer. So um, people keep trying to make improvements as we're rolling things out. I know the, the story that originally kicked this all off when Matt was on CBS was because the county has started running tests uh, through our wastewater uh, system, our, our, our sewer system, to try and get an estimate uh, of how many people there may be in the community that that are um, that have SARS-CoV-2, mm -hmm. um, can you explain how something like that works? How can you test fecal matter in a wastewater system and then extrapolate that into a number of individuals who have a virus? Yeah, I, I that that's not my level of expertise, but what I will say is this. The tests we have are so sensitive um, that we can trace amounts of whatever it is we're looking for to try to figure out, you know, how many people could be responsible for that and therefore conclude about how many people in the population might be shedding it. It's, it's hard for me to um, think about those numbers right off the bat, but for example, in a, in a food um, poisoning case, uh, where we were able to trace back to one cantaloupe plant, you know, one machine that was improperly cleaned and somehow then contaminated this whole batch of cantaloupe. Um, the reason we're able to do that is because we have really great chemistry that can detect really special molecules that, like, only cantaloupe has but honeydew doesn't have or something like that, and then put all those data in a database that then tracks how the food was packaged, delivered, you know, our transport system is amazing. All of that is in the computer now, and so we can figure out, you know, where all of this stuff came from. So that same type of strategy is now trying to be deployed for us to figure out what the viral load is in the population, and if you want to look anywhere, everybody contributes to the sewage system, so, you know, that's pretty democratic. Um, and then the question is for epidemiologists, and I wouldn't begin to know this, is what those numbers tell us about how much of the population might have carried the load. 
Question from uh, Abiola Popola. Apart from hand washing, sanitizing, and the wearing of masks, what else can people do to protect themselves or improve their immunity? To improve your immunity, you need to do all those things that your mom told you. And as we're coming up on Mother's Day, an extra salute to all the advice that mom gave you. Um, you have to eat nutritiously. Um, and that means, you know, eating food that hasn't been overprocessed, eating it in it, as close to its natural condition as possible, and, and double down on fruits and vegetables and, and, and go light on the refined sugars, right? Um, moderation in all ways. You want to stay hydrated. And as we're moving into um, seasons where people are outside more and exercising more, you lose a lot of liquid through sweat and through um, um, other ways that you lose water. <laughs> and so you want to stay hydrated. If you're not hydrated, it, your immune system really takes a hit because uh, its a, a ability to move through all your tissues is hampered. And then sleep. Sleep is the only time that your body really does repair and maintenance. Uh, and those people who know about kind of deferred maintenance know that if you defer maintenance enough, it's going to come back and haunt you. And if you don't sleep properly, then your maintenance uh, activities are competing with your immune system surveillance, and the, your immune system takes a hit every time. I think we want to get one more in here probably, and then we'll, we'll let you uh, get out of here. We're coming up on 530. Um, I know that before uh, this, this really took off, there, there was discussion that there was a, a, an attempt to create a general coronavirus vaccine. When one would have um, you know, worked on any number of, I think, the, the uh, I think t six or so that we know that affect humans, but there's up to 20 that we, we know of. How do you create a vaccine that works in that way? How could you, can you talk to that at all? Yeah, vaccine development is, is, looks really good on paper and it's really difficult to do in real life. Um, so what you need to do with a vaccine is if you want to have a vaccine that is common to many, many viruses, you need to figure out what they have in common on their surfaces. And then you need to use that common feature in the vaccine development. Now, um, these coronaviruses, their whole job is to just make copies of themselves. So they have structures that are able to avoid immune surveillance. So it's, it's kind of a, it's a little chess game of, you know, who's got the upper hand. And um, even though viruses aren't alive, because they reproduce in our cells, evolution still works on them. So I, I would love to think that we could have a universal vaccine, but I wouldn't bet on it. Great. Thank you so much. This has uh, been Dr. Amy Chang Volmer. She is a Wilmington resident, Newcastle County, Delawarean. She is also the Isaac H. Cluvier, Jr. Professor of Microbiology at Swarthmore College, one of the top colleges in our country and the world. And we're really honored to have her here today. She spent years uh, educating college kids uh, on, on the details of microbiology, and her knowledge now is needed more than ever. This is a Facebook Live, a unique Facebook Live of, of Pod County, the first podcast in the first county in the first state. Close this out, Kyle. Yeah, uh, Dr. Chang Ballmer, just want to thank you again for coming in, uh, especially we, we put this together real quick, and, and that's been a thing for us through, you know, this Everything's entire, quick these days. Everything is now. quick. We get an idea, and we get it out to the people as soon as possible. So just I wanted to thank you also for coming in and, and talking with us. Thank you very much. Uh, I just want to say I really miss my students. 
I'm sure they miss you too. Uh, thanks everybody for tuning in, and uh, you can find this on any number of podcast platforms. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please do Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, and uh, of course the last two. This one in our interview with uh, Dr. Timothy Dowling at the University of Delaware uh, here on Facebook and on NCC TV. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>